Okay, we're going to turn to the Bible and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Given the, the uh, talk of title, Refining the Ore. Uh, so we'll mention that basic thought in a moment. We know, you know, if you want to get some gold or some sort of precious metal that we, we tend to dig out a lot of uh, rock. Um, the way they do it these days anyway, and they dig out a lot of rock and the, uh, then that's sort of mulched and refined and eventually you get rid of uh, most of that rock and eventually end up with something which is purified gold or purified silver, uh, the precious metal that's in there. And uh, I really want to talk about that sort of thing today. The Bible talks about uh, uh, almost what you might call a spiritual selection process, um, a filtering out. Uh, The Lord sends out the word and the gospel and there are many people that maybe don't uh, recognise it for for the truth that it is, um, and there are very few that really respond. So we go to Matthew 7 and verse 13. Just a comment that Jesus made here, a very, very important one. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So this is a little bit different to what maybe a lot of people's impression of uh, of, of God's plan, and uh, maybe of, of uh, Jesus Christ as well. Uh, Jesus made it very clear to his disciples and a lot of his teaching, and if you read through the stories in the Bible, it is that way, that <clears throat> the default position of mankind is that he doesn't get it right. He doesn't know the truth. He's not interested in the truth. Um matter of fact, in the Old Testament and in the New, the Apostle Paul, um, quoting the Old Testament, said, there is none good, no, not one. He said they are all gone out of the way, become unprofitable. And uh, the message of the Bible is that the default position is that mankind is in sin and is in darkness and the Lord is sending it his, his word. Uh, but there are very few that actually respond to it. We see that in many stories in the Old Testament. We'll look at one in a moment. Um, and in the new as well. So it is something we've got to, we've got to get hold of, we've got to grasp. That is the way that it is. Um, when Jesus says here to enter in at the straight gate, uh, this uh, word straight is not the word straight that means in a line, uh, but this means narrow and constricted. And that's why he says narrow is the way that leads unto life. So the word straight means, we've got a bit of a definition here from dictionary uh, or a couple of dictionaries, pent up. Closely confined, narrow, difficult to be entered, not obviously entered, and needs diligence to enter. So this is, as I say, not the default position. It's not the position that most people will take. So you've got to recognise that. Jesus Christ himself said it. If you want eternal life, he said there will be few that will find it. That's a bit of a scary thought. Um, but we're going to find that uh, it's not that God is making it difficult. It's that most people don't want it. Uh, they don't want it enough. They would rather go their own way than follow the way of the Lord. Um, there is a, a hymn by a fellow, just as I was going through a couple of the uh, you know, commentaries this morning, there's a hymn by a fellow called Isaac Watts, and uh, he wrote, uh, based on this particular scripture, the first verse in his hymn, is broad as the road that leads to death, and thousands walk together there, but wisdom shows a narrower path with here and there a traveller, or traveller, 
however you would say it. Um, so wisdom is the one that directs us. And the Lord is looking for people who have real faith, who really want to follow him, who really believe in God, who really have a heart that is like God's heart. Uh, they have an interest in doing the right thing. And Jesus Christ says that they are few. Uh, but those who do have that heart, do have that motivation, they will find the truth. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to have a look at a couple of stories that uh, match in the Old Testament and the New Testament on this sort of process where the Lord weeds out and refines um, and gets rid of the dross, if you like, and he finds the true faith. Judges 6 and verse 33. This is the story of Gideon. Now I might actually just read from earlier on in the chapter uh, to give the context. This was a time where Israel was not doing the right thing in the sight of God, which was a fairly common uh, situation. Again, it uh, tends to be the default position. Um, in verse 1 it says, The children of Israel did evil on the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel and because the Midianites, um, because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves, um, and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they camped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till they come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came as grasshoppers for multitude for both they and their camels were without number and they entered into the land to destroy it. So this was the situation and it says Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And then we get the story where the Lord uh, calls Gideon uh, and uh, as, uh, as the children of Israel called upon the Lord, the Lord uh, answered their call and that happened again and again in the book of Judges that they went off the track, they ended up finding themselves in trouble, they turned to the Lord and asked the Lord for help and repented, and the Lord sent them a deliverer. And then after they were delivered, and they went all right for a little while, then they turned off again, went off the tracks, and they kept repeating that cycle again and again. Till eventually God got uh, completely fed up with them and said, well, okay, now you've really done it. And... Uh, they ended up in a in a much much worse situation, but that was pretty much the history of Israel and pretty much the history of mankind as well. But as you can see here, there was this vast, uh, huge multitude of people who were their enemies and oppressing them, and they were in uh, pretty dire straits. So we go down to verse thirty-three, and we see the Lord has called Gideon, and Gideon has sort of wondered where is the power of the Lord and what's happening, and he remembers all the the stories of old, of how the Lord delivered them out of Egypt. And uh, he calls upon the Lord, and the Lord sends him out to do the job. In verse 33, it says, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together, and they went over and they pitched in the valley of Jezreel. For the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet. Abiezer was gathered after him. So the Spirit of the Lord was working here, and he was with Gideon, and uh, he motivated Gideon, Gideon, blew a trumpet to call uh, the children of Israel together to fight in this situation. Now, again, when you recognise this this enemy was like grasshoppers from multitude and, and uh, like the sand upon the seashore, um, they were a huge multitude. 
Anyway, he called, the Spirit of the Lord asked him to call, and he did so. In verse 35, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also was gathered after him. Manasseh was one of the tribes. And he sent messengers unto Asher and unto Zebulun and unto Naphtali, and they came out to meet them. So the call went out to these particular tribes which were in that area, and uh, many people came and answered the call. And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said, and he goes on to tell the story. I won't go into that one because it will take up a bit too much time, but he just asked a sign of the Lord, and the Lord blessed him with uh, various indications that he should do this thing. So go on to the next chapter. And we'll read from verse 1. It says, Then Jeroboam, who was Gideon, and all the people that were with him, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. So the Lord knew what happened. He knew what had happened before. On other occasions, uh, they found themselves in, in, again, dire straits and behind, uh, oppressed by a great enemy. The Lord sent a deliverer and there was a miraculous victory that was wrought there. And <clears throat> afterwards, of course, they start thinking, uh, it really was just our, our brilliance and our genius that, that caused these things to, to work. And, uh, uh, they start to talk them out of some, themselves out of the fact that it was God who did the work, and they sort of think that it was all their own hand. So the Lord says, "Okay, well, we're not going to we're going to make this one very, very, very clear." So first of all, we have a, an immense multitude that's already against them, and as we're going to see, there was about thirty-two thousand people that answered the call here, or men that answered the call. Now you sort of think, well, that's a, a large number of people, but it would, it would appear when you read about the various battles in the Old Testament that the people that were arrayed against them probably outnumbered them 10 to 1 or more than that. So already they were at a great disadvantage. But the Lord said, no, I want to make this absolutely clear. And I have stories later of how one Israelite is worth a 100 Midianites or something like that and how great they are and how skillful they are. He said, I want them to know that this was a miracle. So the Lord said to Gideon, we've got too many here. He said, we're going to sort them out, we're going to refine them down, we're going to filter them out, and uh, just the men whose hearts are really in the right place, and maybe looking to the Lord, and uh, uh, he said, we're going to use them. So in verse 3, Now therefore go to and proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And they returned to the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. So more than two-thirds of the men um, decided, okay, this is my out. So they had responded, interesting, that, of course, when you think about the trumpet call going out and the call to war, first of all, you had 32,000 people who responded to that call. But I am quite sure that there were many more who were even more fearful and afraid uh, or didn't have any confidence in the thought of fighting or, or whatever who never responded to the call in the first place. So you have the 30 and 2,000 already are sort of filtered out of the, the general amount of the men that are in the tribes there. And uh, they have come, they've made a step, and they've, they've come together there. They think maybe this is a good idea. And then the reality starts to hit upon them when they realise they're actually gathering together, they're all there, uh, they've seen the army and the enemy, 
and to start to realize the, uh, the reality of this thing. So the Lord said, I want you to, to go to them. And it's actually in the scriptures. We talked about fear uh, last week. And uh, we mentioned, uh, I didn't actually read the passage, but we, uh, in one of the passages we read there in Leviticus where it talks about you know, you're to go out and fight against the enemy, you're not to fear. Uh, then actually says, before you go out, you are to gather the men together and you say, look, if there's anybody fearful and afraid, go home because we don't want you panicking on the, on the battlefield and then everybody panics. You know, you start to get that moving amongst the ranks and before you know it, you've got a, a rouse on your hands and everybody's running away. So um first thing to do was to eliminate those who were fearful and afraid, who didn't have the faith, who weren't going to be able to trust in God. And uh, so uh, we had more than two-thirds who decided to go. Uh, yesterday we went and had a look at um, just on this thought of when the reality actually strikes. Okay, they responded to the call to fight, but when the reality was upon them um, and it was, looked like the real thing was going to happen, uh, many of them turned back. Yesterday we went to the Air Force Museum. Um, just I'd heard it mentioned uh, the other day. I don't think I've ever actually been there in Christchurch before. I've got a feeling I may have seen part of it many, many, maybe a few decades ago when I first came over here. But, um, yeah, I really didn't know whether I'd been there or not. But we went and had a look yesterday. It's very, very good. Um, and it's free. It's better as far as I'm concerned, but... <clears throat> it was um, yeah, definitely worth uh, uh, worth a bit to go and look at it and sort of learn something there and mainly about the New Zealand uh, Air Force, but uh, goes right into all the First and Second World Wars. I hadn't realised just how much they were involved, and apparently the uh, I think it was the Air Vice Marshal uh, who was basically the man they they credit with winning the Battle of Britain was a New Zealander, and um, can't remember his name, but uh, yeah. Uh, we're quite involved. It's interesting seeing the old the planes and the fighter planes and all the rest of it. And uh, as you go through it, you start to, as you're looking at all this stuff, you start to realise the reality of it and uh, the reality of what they were actually facing. And again, I'm sure it was like this, you know, that there were a lot of people that signed up on the spot. When they actually got to, it's a bit late once you do that with the Army and, and the, the Air Force, etc., in in war, uh, once you sign on the dotted line, you're committed, and even if you are afraid, um, they put you through the uh, the mill. Um, but I dare say there were a lot of people that maybe thought twice once they actually got out onto the battlefield. So there were many people that turned back because they were afraid. In verse 4, and you would think that would be enough, but it says, And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Uh, bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. He's going to test them. And he says, And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people unto the water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. So he put them on one side. He said, Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink, and we'll put them to the other side. And it says, And the number of them that lacked, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. Let all the other people go every man unto his own place. In other words, go home. So the people took victuals in their hand and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man unto his tent, 
and retained those 300 men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. So <clears throat> this particular test was one where, okay, these men were brave enough, but they weren't all diligent enough, they weren't all watchful enough. And it seems to indicate there that we had some men who basically went down to the water and uh, they scooped the water up, maybe squatted down, scooped the water up with their hand to their mouth, which left, uh, particularly if they did it with their left hand, I suppose, if they were right-handed, would have left their right hand free, uh, ready with the weapon, uh, or just, just a bit more alert. But then you had these other people who just, all they were thinking about was having a drink. And so they went down to the, the riverside there, they got down in hands and knees, and totally upended, and having a drink out of the water, mouth down to the water. Now in that situation, if you were suddenly set upon, you would be far less ready to fight and defend. So they were not so watchful, they were maybe not so um, concentrating on things as, as these others. So we, we get it down there, from 10,000 we get down to 300 men. And the Lord said, okay, these are the ones that I'm going to use. They are not only uh, did they respond to the call, but they were also brave enough to continue and had enough faith in God that God would uh, work with them. Uh, but they were also diligent. They were also watchful and they were ready and they were prepared. And so those things filtered down and eventually we ended up with just a handful of men who were the ones the Lord said he would work a miracle with. And we haven't got time to go through the rest of the story today, but if you want to read it through, uh, it obviously was a miracle uh, that the Lord worked there and they defeated this other en- enemy. And in the end, the enemy went on and destroyed itself, um, which is often what happens with the enemies that come against the people of the Lord. Now we're going to go to the New Testament. We're going to look at another story, which is quite well known. Mark chapter 4, uh, one of the parables of Jesus. And we see that it has almost an identical pattern. And this one is talking about people coming uh, to find eternal life. So Mark chapter 4 and verse 1. <clears throat> It says there, And he began again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship, and he sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and he said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, that some fell by the wayside, talking about the seed, and uh, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. So some of it fell on the roadside, and the birds came and snapped up the um, the seeds, as they tend to do if you sow your lawn seed or something, and don't put up a scarecrow, they'll come along and, and uh, uh, take it very quickly. In verse 5, And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty and some sixty and some a hundredfold. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus made that particular comment on uh, just a very few occasions. One of the places he, he most made that comment was actually in the book of Revelation. Apart from that, it's, uh, it's just here in the gospel and the story. Um, it is... Uh, a comment that he made when he really wanted people to pay attention to what he was saying here. 
And so we see this is a situation, what we're looking for is the seed obviously to go into the good ground and that it brings forth fruit and brings forth a harvest. But the Lord said there was many types though, it's the same seed all the way through, it's the same word of God as we're going to see is what this is talking about. But some of it fell on the roadside and that just, that even didn't even get started, didn't get a chance and uh, never got to do its thing. And some of it fell on the shallow ground, the stony ground, and that sprang up quickly, didn't have any depth of earth, uh, and uh, disappeared very quickly. Came up very quickly, but disappeared just as quickly. And then we had some others and that uh, that came up, and that lasted for a long time, but slowly it was choked out by weeds which uh, were allowed to grow up alongside it. Um, and eventually that, of course, came to an end as well. So there's three lots there uh, where you know it was filtered out, but eventually you had the seed on the good ground which responded and uh, continued to bring forth fruit. So keep reading, it says, And he said unto them, "He, uh, Sorry, verse 10, And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. So he had done it this way, um, so that uh, you know, if you really want to understand, you really want to know, you will look into it, you will find the answer. Again, it's sort of the, the door is closed to most people uh, because they don't, they're not diligent enough to search out truth. Uh, but he said, you, you, you see it though. In verse 12 he said, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? He said, if, if you don't understand this one, you won't get any of them. So this is an important one to understand. So he then explains the symbols in the parable. He said, the sower soweth the word. So the seed is the word of God. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. So it's a bit like the people that you might talk to in the street. And you hand them a pamphlet and you say, do you, do you believe in God? Um, and even if they sort of talk for a couple of minutes, they're just not interested. And they don't get what you're talking about and uh, they don't really want to get what you're talking about and they just brush it aside. The devil sort of, you know, has, has closed them off. Uh, their thinking is of this world. They're not interested in things of the Lord. So they don't even get started. They don't get a foothold. They don't, they don't start at all. The seed never activates. And in verse 16 it says, And these are they which likewise are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. And uh, maybe, you know, they, they jump up and down, they think this is something new, this is something great, I really like this, this is good, this is what I've been looking for. But in verse 17 it says, And they have no root in themselves, because they're on shallow ground, stony ground, and so endure but for a time, and afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. So these people don't last very long at all. Um, so, you know, respond very quickly to the word of God, but as soon as they find out it's unpopular, or mum and dad don't like it, or, you know, brother or sister doesn't like it, or work colleagues don't like it, or they get a bit of persecution, they get a bit of uh, ridicule, um, they find it's a bit difficult, um, oh, toss that in or it's just something that they're a bit afraid of, uh, the reaction. And in verse 18, These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this world, 
and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts or desires of other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. So this is over a longer period of time and this can happen to anybody any time. And uh, this is where slowly over time you start to lose the picture, you start to lose the vision, you start to find other things getting involved in your life, you're a bit caught up in this or that, it can be anything, and it can be quite um, harmless things, but it might be, as it says, cares of this world, it might be your career, it might be your, your lifestyle, it might be your marriage, it might be um, friends and family, it might be interests that you have or hobbies or whatever, you know, it might be all quite innocent things, but if they start uh, taking over your life and you forget about what the main purpose is, as it says, it's like weeds growing in, slowly growing up and choking out the word. And the word, um, and it becomes unfruitful, or the, uh, uh, the plants there, they become unfruitful. And uh, it says, And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some hundreds. Everybody's different. The Lord gives us different jobs to do. But the main thing is the Lord is looking for fruit. So he wants us to heed the word, to do the word, to practice the word, to live and to follow him, and uh, that way we bring forth fruit. And uh, when the Lord comes back, we rise to meet him in the air. As the Lord says, he's looking for those who overcome and to continue to follow him. So Pastor Jock, always, uh, who used to be pastor here uh, many years ago, had been here for 20 years, he's back in Adelaide now, but um, he always used to say, when he first came to the Lord, he was only about 17 years old, um, but he heard the gospel. He took a few weeks to uh, to really um, uh, sort of catch on to things. He received the Spirit, he got baptised. Um, but uh, at, at one point there, I can't remember whether it was Pastor John or somebody else, showed him this particular uh, passage. I think it actually may have been somebody else. Um, I'm trying to remember his name, doesn't matter. Uh, but anyway, he showed him this particular passage and uh, Pastor Jock recognised that he'd just come to the Lord and <clears throat> this applied to him. And he recognised, okay, the first one is the person that just doesn't respond whatsoever. He thought, well, that's not me because I responded. I, 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 so I'm not the one on the, uh, on the roadside, not the seed on the roadside. So the next one is the, the one on shallow ground that springs up and responds but doesn't last very long. So I thought, you know, I've got that could be me. So I've got to hang in there. I've got to get through, you know, the first few weeks. So I get through the first few months, and I've got to commit myself to the things of the Lord. And then he recognised the third category that which gets choked out by the weeds. That that could happen at any stage in your life. You know, it doesn't matter whether you've been in the Lord uh, three weeks or thirty years or seventy years. If you allow things to choke out the Word of God, you can die off just as easily. So um, uh, one of these situations at least applies to all of us, regardless of how long we've been in the things of the Lord. And of course uh, we're looking to be part of the, the group at the end that overcomes and endures unto the end. Now when you go through this particular parable and you compare it with the story that we saw there with Gideon, it's very similar because first of all we have Gideon goes out and he sounds the call with the trumpet and calls the people to battle and a lot of them didn't respond. So we have in, in, in this story of the sower and the seed, we have the seed goes onto the roadside and so it just doesn't activate. 
So that's that situation. They don't respond to the trumpet call. They don't respond to the word of God. That's the first category. The second category are those who responded and came along. Yeah, let's go out there and fight and let's take on these Midianites. And they got out there and they saw the Midianites and they recognized, oh, this this ain't going to be easy because there's a lot of them and there's few of us. And they started to get scared by it. And as soon as the actual battle was in front of them all, there was a bit of persecution, a bit of oppression or whatever, suddenly they wanted out. And uh, so they left. So those that were on the, the shallow ground, they were only shallow in their commitment. They didn't last more than a few days. They sort of responded, didn't last, took off. And then we have the third category, and they were the ones who were not watchful. Um, and we see that in Gideon's case, he, he <coughs> took the men down to the water and he looked, well, the Lord said, I want to pick those who are diligent, who are ready, who are watchful, not those who sort of uh, tossed everything and, and sort of down on their hands and knees, just, just having a drink, that's all they were interested in, not being watchful and ready. Um, so again, it's the, uh, the ones that get caught out and choked out by the weeds uh, that are being sorted out there. But the final lot, the 300 that were left, were the ones who brought forth fruit, if you like. They were diligent, they were watchful, they were committed, uh, they had faith in God, so they got through. So again, it's, it's, it's a great filtering process and you end up with a few that actually end up uh, doing these things. And we have to make sure that we get through that. We recognise that these passages, these particular um, um, stories there and stages apply to all of us. We have to plough on through to the end. Again, as the Lord says, the way to eternal life is narrow and few there be that find it. In First Peter, we won't turn there just for time's sake, First Peter chapter 1 it says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And Peter is just saying it's um, we go through many, we go through a lot of heaviness, we go through a lot of um, different types of trials and temptations and testings, he says, but we go through a trial of faith and uh, it comes out purified uh, and our faith is much more precious than that of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire. So we go through a great fire of afflictions, the Bible says, but if if we're made of if in the heart there we are truly committed, we truly have faith in the Lord, we truly want to follow the Lord, we continue on. And all the Lord is sort of knocking or if you like, if we're sort of a lump of ore to begin with, the Lord knocks a lot of things off us, he cuts off all the rough edges, and he gets rid of all the rubbish out of our lives, and as we go along, hopefully as as the um you know, you start breaking things apart and and melting it down, you end up with some of the gold. Now, if, you, if you're actually doing mining or something like that, or you're getting a, a sluice box or this sort of thing, and you pour in a lot of gravel and you put all this stuff and you're shaking it around and getting rid of all the bad stuff, you hope that eventually you're going to see the glitter of gold there, and uh, it was worth doing. What happens, of course, with the vast majority of people is as you go through the process and you go through this process and then you go through the second process and you go through the third process uh, and then there's nothing. So there's, there's no gold there. There's no faith there. There is no true belief there. And the Lord is allowing us to go through these things to 
so that he can test the hearts. And it becomes obvious to all men then uh, there is a testimony that we truly do want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord is uh, he's refining the ore. He's allowing things to happen in this world and out of it we're finding uh, he's finding his true saints who really want to follow him. Again, in Proverbs it says, and there's a lot of scriptures along this particular line about the refining of metal. It says, The fining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth hearts. So that's what's happening in, in this filtering out process. The Lord is trying our heart. And uh, I think as well as just talking about multitudes of people here and different types of people, he's also talking about our own lives. We will go through various stages and various processes and the Lord will say, okay, this has happened to them. Uh, have they survived that? You know, have they feared? Have they held on in faith? Yes, they have. That's good. And then other things will come against us and the Lord will say, well, you know, uh, are they diligent? Are they watchful? Are they ready? Are they prepared? Are they, are they reading the word? Are they looking to me? Are they, you know, praying to me? Um, and again, as we go through things, the Lord says, there you see. This person, their heart is pure. We see that there is faith. We see that there is gold there. And it becomes obvious to all. Until you go through that process, you don't find the gold. You don't know whether it's there or not. Uh, I've told this little story before, but I used to collect rocks when I was a kid. And, um, <clears throat> used to go out in, in the Adelaide Hills. Uh, it was, uh, you get all sorts of minerals and crystals and rocks of all sorts of different types out in the Adelaide Hills. It was a fantastic place. Australia's got a lot of minerals and things, a lot of mineral wealth. And we had an Easter camp up in the Adelaide Hills at one stage and it turned out there was an old silver and lead mine in this place. And Dad and myself used to go down to this place and we'd fossick around and hunt for rocks and find all sorts of interesting things. Um, but on this uh, particular place, uh, one day, uh, there were a lot of dusty rocks everywhere. And anyway, I picked one up and it was really heavy. It was only about the size of uh, fit in my, in my uh, hand, but it was really heavy. It was just dusty like all the other rocks. And uh, anyway, I had a hammer and uh, I, I cracked it in half. When I cracked it open... It was like bright shining silver, solid bright shining silver. And I just thought, I'm rich. And uh, I thought, this is, this looks amazing. And I raced over to dad and said, look at this, look at this. And he was just as stunned. And uh, we started to find uh, veins of this stuff in a little cliffside there. And uh, we started finding it all over the place, cracking open these rocks and pure silver. Anyway, uh, we took it, took it back and found out what it was. Um, unfortunately, it was it was galena, it was lead ore, which does have some silver in it. But um, lead, as you know, sort of doesn't look all that shiny. But this stuff had not been exposed to oxygen, and so what happens is when you crack it open for the first time, it is bright and shiny, and it looks like silver. And um, anyway, uh, it, when you leave it, though, over a few months, it starts to oxidise and it starts to look dull and doesn't look that shiny anymore. But it was pretty much a pure pure piece of metal uh, ore and it was um, very exciting. Again, uh, you don't always know what's inside until you crack it with a hammer. Now, the Lord allows us to be cracked with a hammer on occasions and then we find out what's truly inside. 
and uh, it's a testimony to everybody then that uh, there's something good inside. Now we go to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 and verse 17. Just here, another short story. Um, this is the uh, young rich man. It's in verse 17. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So a man came up to him. This is another uh, stories in the Gospels there. Gives a bit more detail. He was a young rich ruler and uh, he came, as it says, running up to Jesus, kneeled in front of him and he said, What may I what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Um, and Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honour thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. So the Lord, uh, in a sense, he tested him out a bit here. And he went through the first process. He said, there are various things that you will have to to do and to recognize. He says, well, you know what the commandments are. Do not uh, commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, etc., etc." And um, this man said, okay, I've done that. He said, all my youth, all through my life, he was only a young man, which could have meant that he was in his 20s or 30s, but he um, he said, all through my youth, I have kept these things. I've gone through that particular stage. I've done those things. And he was hoping, I dare say, that that was it, that the Lord was going to say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've done all that you needed to do. Uh, You've passed the test and uh, you will enter into life. You're automatically there, no further uh, problems, nothing else you have to do. And uh, so he was somebody who had responded to the call. He was somebody who had made an effort and he'd done these things he was supposed to do. Verse 21, though, it says, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Now, Jesus knew the hearts of everybody. And uh, in this particular case, he knew that this man had a problem. But it's interesting that it says there, Jesus, beholding him, loved him. So here's a man Jesus knew had responded. And from his youth, he had put in effort to do things and to do things right. And the Lord knew that in his heart there was part of him there that really wanted to follow the Lord and that really did want to obtain eternal life. But Jesus also knew that there was one other test to see whether it was a true heart that was going to be totally committed, that was going to follow right through and do all things that he had to do. And he couldn't leave that. He said, there's one thing One more test. He said, One thing thou lackest, he said, Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. So um, he knew that this man had great treasure, and he said, Do you value the treasure in heaven more than the treasure that you have upon this earth? He said, I want you to take up the cross, and when you read that, we know what it means now, but at the time they didn't know what it meant. Um, they didn't know that Jesus was going to the cross and that he was going to die crucified upon the cross. But Lord, they understood crucifixion though and he was saying, you've got to be prepared to die and suffer and follow me. So he just pointed out that thing, one thing 
thou lackest. This is the last thing. It, could have, it should have been to the young man the thought, um, he should have thought, there's only one more thing. There's only one more thing that I need to do. You know, I, I've done all the rest, just one more. I mean, if, if he'd really been thinking about it, he could have thought to himself, maybe he was expecting the Lord was going to say, oh, well, you know, you've done these things, but I've got a list of a hundred over here that you haven't even started on yet. In that case, you'd sort of feel a bit you know, despondent and in despair, but the Lord just said, it's just one more thing, one thing that you lack. And uh, unfortunately, though, this was the big thing in his life. It obviously meant a lot to him. Now, every individual is different and we can all have, well, in some cases it might be a lot of things that we have, uh, but there may be one thing that is very hard for us to to put um, to one side and we need to get God number one in our life. Anyway, so the Lord said you need to give up that treasure and um, and consider the treasure in heaven to be more important. And in verse 22 it says, And he was sad at that saying. His bottom lip dropped. Maybe he was expecting, maybe he was fishing for compliments. Maybe he was just expecting the Lord was going to say, oh, look, there's no problem with you, uh, Bob or Bill or whatever your name is. Um, uh, I've, I've been watching you and I've seen all the wonderful things that you've done since your youth. You know, you go straight, straight to, um, say, straight to jail. Don't pass go. No, that's not right. Um, you, you just, you get there. No, no problem. You know, you don't have to stop for anything. You've already made it. Maybe in his mind that was the answer that he was partly expecting. And when he was told there was something else, he was a bit disappointed. But it says he was sad at the saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And uh, when you understand why there's conflict here, um, again, as I often say, the only reason he's torn here and he's upset is because he wanted to do both. He did want eternal life, otherwise he wouldn't have been upset about this. He would have just laughed at Jesus and walked away, thought, blow that, I'm not interested in eternal life. I've got me, me, me riches here, um, and that's all I need. But he obviously wanted eternal life, but also he obviously wanted, uh, and it was important to him, his treasure in this life. Now again, if that wasn't important to him, he wouldn't have been sad. If Jesus said, look, this is one other thing you've got to go through here, and then you'll have eternal life. If he'd been thinking clearly that all he wanted was eternal life, he, he just would have said, oh, that's nothing. It's done. Consider it done. It's gone. It's over. It's finished. That's what I want is eternal life. Again, he wouldn't have been sad. But because he wanted both, and they were both weighing up there, he was in torment. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So the balance has to tip. And, uh, you know, the old the old balance scales... The way that they work is, you know, you just put even a little bit more on one side and it just goes like that, okay? So it is completely that way. We know that we're always going to have things on this side that are important to us and whatever, but the balance must tip so that the Lord is number one and, um, you know, it must overwhelm the other. And that's the way it's always going to be. We're going to have things in our life. We might even have treasure. We might, like Abraham, there's a pretty rich man, but um, he his faith was more important to him than those things. So there might be th- all sorts of things were involved in our life, but the balance must always tip uh, in God's favour. God must always come number one. Um, Jesus went on to say, verse 23, And Jesus looked around about and saith unto his disciples, 
how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And again, those riches can be anything. It can be all sorts of things in our life. It doesn't have to be just physical um, or monetary type uh, riches. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and saith unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So that's extremely difficult, of course, however you understand that. And uh, in verse 26, And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? You know, if it's, if it's that strict, if it's that straight, if there's, if there's even one thing can hold you back, he said, who can be, they thought, who can be saved? And Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So you just have the right attitude towards God, God can get you through. And then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren. And again, when you read through this list, these are the riches uh, that individuals may have. I mean, you know, to me, uh, whether my my uh, natural brother, brother cared whether I was in the Lord or not wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference to me because I don't have a brother. Um, but, um, you know, if, if there's family, if that's more important to you, if your house is more important to you, um, lands, whatever it be. So there's no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children with lands, with persecutions, uh, uh, and in the world to come eternal life. So if you give up things in this life, the Lord will bless you in another way. You might have, um, you know, some people literally have, uh, in some parts, I don't know, in Australia, there's, there's um, some cultures, in the Greek culture, particularly with a lot of Greeks in, in Australia, and we had a lot of people come to the Lord from some of those cultures. And family is very, very strong in that. And for you to go to another church, which is maybe not Greek Orthodox Church or something like that, that was the end of the world. And we literally have testimonies about people being chased down the road with axes by their own father or their own um, uh, people in their, in their family, you know, just because they... They broke away from the family and went to another church, these sort of things. But those people that have made the separation for the, as it says there, for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake, they have entered into a fellowship where they have, as Jesus said, many people who are their brothers and sisters and, and, and family, you know, which are very close to them because they are the people that believe in the word of God. And uh, as it says, you'll also receive persecutions, but in the world to come eternal life which is what the young rich man asked about in the first place. But Jesus said in verse 31, but many that are first shall be last and the last first. So I've um, run out of time there. But uh, in Luke, again, um, similar a recording of the, the story. I'll just read you what Jesus said, similar to the one we read at the beginning. Uh, it says, And he went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, and then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, or the constricted gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. It's not that God is shutting them out, just that they will not find it in their hearts 
to actually do what they need to do to enter in. And so the Lord says strive, he says push, he says force your way through. He says make sure that you consider it important to go in at this gate because he said it's very easy to go the other way, that just happens by default. But as it says in the Amplified, strive to enter by the narrow door, force yourselves through it, for many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able, again, because they really don't want to. Maybe just on a positive note in Luke 12, Jesus talked about all the things that we can have in this world, just like the young rich man there. Um, and the Lord said, look, the Lord knows you have need of these things. And he says, but don't worry about those things. Don't become anxious about those things. His message to them was, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things should be added unto you. So put the kingdom of God first. And all these other things, the family and, uh, and, and uh, other things in this life, the Lord says, I'll sort that out. He says, I know what you have need of. I know that you need food and I know that you need a, a house to live in and, and all that sort of thing. He said, you seek the kingdom of God first. These things will be added unto you. And he went on to say, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants you to enter into that door. And uh, so he's, he's behind that. He wants that. It's, that's his desire. But it must be our desire as well to push on and to enter in. More people said. Thank you.